You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Good afternoon. I'm Anthony Painter. Um, I'm Director of Action and Research here at the RSA, and I'm delighted to welcome you all for today's very special lunchtime uh, talk. It's my very great pleasure to introduce this afternoon's guest speaker, um, Dr. Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, Dr. Harari um, has a PhD in history from the University of Oxford and now lectures at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He is renowned the world over for his best-selling book, Sapiens, um, which has been both critically and publicly lauded um, and which was recommended as an essential read by everyone from Bill Gates to Barack Obama and me. (laughs) His much-acclaimed follow-up is Homo Deus, Uh, It details uh, sometimes a a shocking vision of humanity's future um, and um, has recently been published already to wide um, acclaim. He joins us today to give us a glimpse into the world we may be rapidly approaching. Uh, I personally can't wait to hear what he has to say, so without further ado, please join me in welcoming Yuval Noah Harari. So uh, thank you, everybody, for coming to listen and for watching online also. And before starting uh, this short talk on the future of equality and inequality, I just want to make one thing very, very clear, that uh, what I'm going to say here and also what I say in the book, it's not prophecies, it's not forecasts about what will happen. It's just mapping uh, various possibilities that may happen But if you don't like these possibilities, you have some choice, some ability to influence it uh, by making different decisions today. And for me, this is the whole point of writing a book about the future or starting a discussion about the future, not trying to predict what will happen, that's not very relevant, but rather trying to change what will happen by starting or continuing a discussion. So the subject that I would like to address in this short talk is the future of equality and inequality, and in particular the possibility that in the 21st century, humankind might create the most unequal societies ever, Uh, that equality will stop being a central value, and that we'll get further and further away from this 20th century ideal of creating a really equal society. And what we first of all need to realize is that actually equality is a relatively new value and that most human societies, at least from the agricultural revolution onwards, were based on hierarchies and on the belief that hierarchies are a natural and just way to construct a society. Most human societies were founded on a belief in natural or divinely ordained hierarchies between classes, between people, between genders, between parents and children, and so forth. It's only in the last century or two, really, that equality became such a central and such an important value for humankind. And you can say that, to a large extent, uh, the central theme of 20th century history, you can tell the whole story of the 20th century as a story of trying to overcome the gaps, to destroy 
the old hierarchies of, ra- of race and class and gender and to create a more equal society. Not that in, 19, in, in 2000 the world was completely equal, certainly not, but it was a more egalitarian place, a more equal place than it was in 1900. However, when we look to the future, to the next few decades, the danger is that many of the achievements of the 20th century will be nullified, that many of the gaps that were narrowed down in the last century will open up again, and indeed that new gaps will appear that will make society much more unequal than ever before. First of all, we need to take into consideration the possibility of opening or reopening gaps between different countries and different areas of the world. If we look back to the 19th century, then what we see in the 19th century is that humankind in the Industrial Revolution gained control, gained mastery of enormous new powers, the power of steam, of oil, of electricity, of radio. And these new powers gave humans the ability to produce textiles and food and vehicles and weapons much more cheaply and abundantly and efficiently than ever before. However, these new powers and these new manufacturing abilities were not shared equally between all the countries, all the societies, all the races on the earth. Rather, it was a relatively small number of countries, primarily Britain and then France and Germany and Japan and the United States, that led the Industrial Revolution, that gained control over these new powers. Most countries, most societies did not industrialize at the same pace. They were left far behind. An immense gap opened between countries like Britain and France and countries like China or India. And the few industrialized nations basically conquered the world, subjugated it, and exploited everybody else. It took countries like China and India about 150 years to close the gap that opened in the 19th century. And some areas of the world, especially in Africa and the Middle East, even today are still far away from closing the gaps that opened with the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century. Now, what we are facing in the coming decades is a new and even more dramatic Industrial Revolution. Again, humankind is about to master new powers. This time, it's not steel and electricity and oil, but it's the power of computer algorithms and the power of biotechnology. This time, the new powers will not be used in order to produce and manufacture just textiles and food and vehicles and weapons. This time, the main product of the economy in the 21st century are likely to be bodies and brains and minds. We are learning how to decipher, how to engineer, and how to manufacture bodies and brains and minds. But as in the 19th century, so also in the 21st century, these new powers are unlikely to be shared equally by all the countries in the world. Again, we are likely to see a few countries, a few societies leading this new revolution and most others being left far behind. And the danger is 
that this time, if you are left behind, you will never get a second chance. China, in the 19th century, missed the Industrial Revolution, but eventually it gained a second chance to catch up, to, to close the gap. This time, if you are left behind, you will never get a second, a second chance because the difference, the gap between a society that knows how to manufacture bodies and brains and minds and a society that doesn't know how to do it is far, far bigger than the gap between a society that knows how to produce a steam engine and a society that doesn't. So the first um, option for unprecedented inequality is between countries, between different human societies. But at the same time, we might also see uh, huge inequalities, huge gaps opening within societies between the upper classes and the lower classes, and much bigger than we saw in any previous time in history. Because throughout history, the difference between the rich and the poor, between the nobility and the common people, it was social difference, it was an economic difference, it was a political difference, but it was never a real biological difference. The nobility might have imagined itself to be a kind of superior, uh, a superior entity, superior beings, but as far as science uh, tells us, this was not true. This was just the imagination. There was no real difference in either physical or cognitive abilities between the king and the peasants. It was only social and political differences. However, in the 21st century, with the help of especially biotechnology and also artificial intelligence, we might see, for the first time in history, social differences being translated into real biological differences and humankind being split into different biological castes and even into different species, which is not really unprecedented because if you go back in time 50,000 years ago, then you find planet Earth populated by at least six or seven different human species. Over the last 20,000 years, however, only Homo sapiens survived because we basically destroyed, eliminated all the others. This, in the long run, might be a very, very short interval between two periods when Earth was populated by several different human species at the same time. Now, when people hear about this possibility of humankind splitting into different biological castes or even into different species because of advances in biotechnology and in the medical sciences, a very common reaction is to say that we shouldn't fear this, uh, this eventuality, this possibility, because it won't happen uh, even if some medical advances will begin with the upper classes in the most advanced societies, gradually they will trickle down and benefit everybody and they won't open any serious gap between uh, biological castes. And as evidence, as proof, uh, these, these people, these scholars, point, out, point to what happened in the 20th century, that in the 20th century too, many of the most important medical breakthroughs began with the upper classes 
in the advanced societies, but gradually they trickled down and benefited everybody so that things like vaccinations or antibiotics today benefit not only rich people in Britain, they also benefit, at least to some extent, even the poorest segments of society in India and China and Africa. However, we cannot be complacent and, uh, and just, be, and just say, tell, tell ourselves that whatever happened in the 20th century will repeat itself because the 21st century is a very different world from the previous one. First of all, medicine is in the midst of a tremendous revolution, not only a revolution in, in technicalities, but a revolution in essence. The very essence of medicine, the very aim of medicine, is changing. In the 20th century, and throughout most of history, the central aim of medicine was to heal the sick. But in the 21st century, the main aim of medicine might become to upgrade the healthy. And upgrading the healthy is a completely different kind of project than healing the sick. Healing the sick is, by definition, an egalitarian project. It has the assumption that there is a single norm of human health which is applicable to everybody, and if somebody falls below this universal norm of health on either the physical or the mental level, it is the job of doctors or physicians to help this person come back as, as close as possible to the norm. So the ideal is to provide everybody with the same standard of health, with the same physical and mental abilities. In contrast, upgrading the healthy is by definition an elitist project. It may start with the assumption that there is a universal norm of health, of abilities, but the aim is to go beyond that, to provide some people with abilities which are supernormal, which most people don't have. And if some kind of upgrade becomes so cheap and so ubiquitous that everybody enjoys it, it simply becomes the new standards and the new starting base for the next phase of upgrades. So this is the first reason why we can't expect the 20th century process simply to repeat itself. Uh, the second and even more disturbing uh, fact we need to take into account is that the reason why uh, 20th century medicine benefited the masses is because in the 20th century, the masses were vital. They were necessary uh, to the state, to the economic system, to the military system. In the 20th century, not only liberal democracies, but also dictatorial regimes, totalitarian dictatorial regimes, invested heavily in the health of the vast majority of the population. Even Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union in the age of Stalin and so forth, provided you weren't a Jew or a Kulak, you got much better health care than in any previous time in history. Why? Not because Hitler and Stalin were very nice people, but because they knew they needed the masses. If Hitler wanted Germany to be a strong nation with a strong army and a strong economy, he needed the millions of ordinary poor Germans to serve as soldiers in his army and to serve as workers in the factories and in the offices. 
So there was a very strong incentive to invest in their health and also in their education and to some extent in their welfare. This is why the 20th century was the age of the masses. Everybody was useful. Everybody was necessary. But this is now changing. In the military field, the military is usually a few years ahead, a few steps ahead of the civilian economy. And in the military sphere, already today in 2016, most people are completely useless. The, the army has nothing, uh, needs nothing from them. Whereas in the 20th century, the best armies in the world relied on recruiting millions and millions of ordinary people to serve as common soldiers. Today, the best armies in the world rely on recruiting much smaller numbers of super warriors, of highly, highly professional soldiers, and increasingly on more and more sophisticated and autonomous technology like drones and robots and cyber worms and so forth. So already today, most people have no military value. And the same thing might happen in the civilian economy. In coming years, uh, we face the possibility that just as the 19th century Industrial Revolution created the urban working class, so the 21st century Industrial Revolution will create the useless class. As artificial intelligence outperforms humans in more and more tasks and jobs, it will push billions of humans out of the job market and will uh, create this new useless class are composed of people who are not just unemployed, but unemployable. There is nothing to do with them. Now, of course, um, there will be new jobs once AI uh, renders humans uh, uh, useless in jobs like driving taxis or uh, diagnosing diseases. Uh, probably new jobs will appear However, there are two question marks, and we can explore this further in, in, in the questions and answer time. There are two question marks above this idea that new jobs will provide uh, opportunities for unemployed taxi drivers or unemployed doctors. First of all, there will be new jobs, but maybe the artificial intelligence will do the new jobs better than humans, just as the old jobs. The second problem is that uh, with the acceleration of the pace of technological change, humans will have to reinvent themselves again and again and again throughout their lives, and many of them might just not be able to do it. Uh, throughout history, and even today, we had this model of life which divides life into two major sections, two major periods in life. In the first period, you mostly learn and then in the second period, after you're 20 or 30, you mostly work. You make use of the knowledge, of the skills that you've learned in your teens and 20s, and you work. Of course, you learn a few things as you go on, but this is mainly a period of making use of what you already know. Now, this is going to be irrelevant, even in the optimistic scenario that new jobs will keep appearing as all jobs are disappearing, the question is whether Homo sapiens, whether the ordinary person is capable of reinventing himself or herself again and again, not only in their teenage years, but also when they are 40 or 50. Can an unemployed insurance agent reinvent himself or herself as a designer of virtual worlds? 
How does a virtual world designed by a 50-year-old ex-insurance agent looks like? So it's not clear that even if there are new jobs, it will save billions of people from being relegated to the useless class. Um, So we have before us this possibility, again, not a prophecy, but a possibility that in the 21st century, we will see a new kind of inequality emerging as humankind is split into a new upgraded elite of superhumans, and on the other hand, a new massive class of useless humans. So thank you very much for listening, and I guess you have a lot of questions, so we now have time for some questions. Quite a lot to chew on there. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you a question first of all about the, the, the general thesis of, of the book and in, indeed related to your previous book, Sapiens, and then come on to the points about um, in, in, inequality. And I just, I wonder, I mean, when I was reading your, your, your book, I, I couldn't help thinking back to sort of Nietzsche and genealogy and morality and how humans adapted through phases and leading to the rejection of um, religion, spiritualism, the rise of what you call humanism and rationalism and so on. And I just, I wonder um, ultimately how much we can choose. Now, you've been very careful to underline the fact that these are not prophecies in, in, in your book, and that's absolutely clear in the book itself. It's, it's possibilities. But I just wonder, in reality, how much we can evade a future where um, we have become upgraded, where um, the Internet of All Things, the flows of data and technology, um, become something that we can't resist, because innovation continues all around us. And how do you coordinate or decelerate or slow a process that's already in train and maybe accelerating it. So my, my, my question is ultimately, can we choose, even if we can slow slightly or divert it slightly, ultimately this is our fate, um, whether it's 100, 200, 300 years hence? Well, it, it depends on, on, on the kind of choices you want to make. If what you want is just stop, this is impossible. I mean, if you're frightened by the directions that biotechnology or artificial intelligence is taking, and you want to say, okay, stop all research in computer science or in biology, this is not going to happen. Yeah. The kind of choice you, we do have is, to some extent, about the direction it is taking. Again, if you look back at history, so you look at the Industrial Revolution, you have these new technologies of steam engines and radio and electricity and all that. Now... Uh, to say we don't want electricity, this wouldn't have worked. But with the same technology of trains and electricity, you could construct a communist society, a capitalist society, a fascist society, a liberal democracy. You have a menu of opportunities. Mm. And if you look, for example, I don't know, at South Korea and North Korea, there could be very different destinations that you can reach with the same kind of technology. But not different species. Um, Different, again, we're going to have biotechnology. The question is what to do with it. And I'll give a simple example, a practical example, not from the fate of humans, but from the fate of animals. We now have better and better uh, biotechnology uh, that can help us uh, start designing Mm. the bodies of other animals. Now, one thing you can do with it 
is start designing cows that produce more milk yeah. and chickens with, with more meat and all kinds of other monstrosities, uh, completely disregarding the subjective experience and the suffering of the animals themselves and caring only about profits. Yes. This is one thing you can do with this biotechnology. Another thing you can do with the same technology is to say, okay, I'm going to invest my effort in, and my money in the production of cultured meat. Yes. Cultured meat is the idea of just growing meat from cells without there being a chicken or a pig or a cow at all. Yes. And uh, some people who care a lot about animal welfare say this is the only practical solution yes. for the problem of uh, the suffering of domesticated animals is cultured meat. So you have the same technology and you can use it either to inflict terrible suffering on billions of sentient beings or to rescue billions of sentient beings from suffering. Yes. This is the kind of choice we do, we do have. Yes, it's interesting. And, and um, it relates actually to the inequality question because the way to resolve these issues ultimately is by um, establishing ethical or inclusive institutions. That's, that's the way that we resolve the inequality issue. It's the way that we resolve ethical dilemmas. We establish norms and rules and regulations and laws and we enforce them and we sanction and, and so on. And coming to your question about um, in, inequality, the fear has to be that the sort of changes that you're describing are very fast. You know, already there is this global network, this global data flow, this global um, access to scientific knowledge, even if it is housed in particular IP uh, locations, this internet of, of global things. And this is very fast and it seems to be accelerating. Mm -hmm. The problem is that we're still loaded with that sort of prehistoric operating system, um, which is human morality. Um, which creates challenges to collective action. Certainly not impossible, and in fact, we have collective institutions that are very fundamental. In fact, in your first book, you see that as an essential part of the human experience, that we can craft these, these, these institutions. But I just wonder, given the pace of change, whether we can craft these inclusive, ethical mm. institutions quick enough before just the, the spirit of innovation, whoever might have influence and control over that can take it in that direction. And we might lose control very, very quickly without being able to mitigate its impacts. Yes, this is the, the current danger. I mean, it's already happening. If you think about the last 20 years, the biggest change in the world was probably the internet. Yes. Um, the internet involved making a lot of ethical decisions about the shape and form of the internet because the internet is, is not just one thing. There yes. could have been many different internets. Yes. And you had to make choices with impact on things like privacy, like security, like sovereignty. And decisions were made, but not using democratic processes. I mean, I never voted about the internet, about no. the shape of the internet. Uh, certainly in Israel, I think also in the UK, no political party had any clear policy no. about what the internet would look like. No. So you had a very small number of people who represent nobody but themselves taking maybe the most important decisions in the world. And this is going just to accelerate if we don't do something about it. Um, I, my fear is that the institutions, the political institutions we currently have yeah. are an inheritance from the 20th century. They were good for 20th century conditions. They are becoming irrelevant yeah. to 21st century conditions. And this is partly what explains the anger 
of voters in more and more countries, like the UK, like the US, I think they correctly sense mm. that they are becoming marginalized. Maybe they go to vote every four years, but it doesn't matter. Yes. Uh, and they are very angry. I think they, they are wrong in their diagnosis of where the power has shifted to. Yes. The power did not shift to, the, to Brussels or to, to EU. No. The power has shifted to the cloud. Right. And the question is, how, how do we access the cloud and who controls the cloud? Yeah. And, and this is, may well be an emerging fault line, which you identify very clearly between what you describe as humanism and, and data um, ism. And mm-hmm. in fact, I was on a panel a few months ago where someone said basically human relations are a nostalgia. And I felt myself having a violent reaction to this, right? <laughs> but I felt the same sort of thing reading, reading your book. I, th- I, I got the feeling that somehow I should be rooting for humanity here. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder actually whether we're, we're, we're already approaching the Rubicon, if not, if not crossing it in many respects. I was reading your book um, yesterday and I was watching the Apple products launch, oh. yeah, which is always, always interesting if you want to see stilted corporate presentations in action. Um, <laughs> And that's it. But what was interesting was when they talked about some of the applications, and on came a guy from um, Pokemon, and he said, our app has been downloaded 500 million times, and guess what? 5.6 billion miles have been walked because of our app. Right? And then came on a designer of, uh, of a hiking app, and she said, look, you can go through Yosemite Park, and we'll, we'll craft the thing, we'll craft the experience for you, and we'll deliver that to your phone, and you can just follow your phone, and that's, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. And then the most interesting one of all, on came a guy from Nike, who basically said, you've got the Apple Watch now, and we can help you with your, your key fit. Um, if you run on Sundays, then that means you'll be healthier throughout the week. We have evidence, and so we're going to prompt you to do that. But this is not about data and metrics. This is about well-being and fun. And I thought, God, the high priests of dataism are kind of denying the reality of what's going on here. Now, mm-hmm. that, that's a kind of light-hearted um, story, but you, you do can see how this works and how the interventions happen and how already we're starting to be connected to a, a data cloud, as mm-hmm. you described it, that makes decisions about what we th- should think are good decisions. And we don't seem to be making active choices about whether that's a good thing or not. Mm-hmm. So maybe we're already there. Oh, we are getting there. I mean, I think authority is shifting away from humans to algorithms yeah. uh, because algorithms are getting to know us better than we know ourselves. Mm. It's, in the end, it's an empirical question. If Amazon and Google recommend things that turn out to be better than your own choices, yes. then it's just <laughs> rational to listen yes. to Google and not to your own feelings. So it's really, I mean, if... If you want to root for humanity, if you want to stay ahead of the algorithms, the only thing you can do is get to know yourself better than yeah. the algorithms know you. And this is going to be very, a very demanding task. <laughs> very much so. One, one thing that stuck, stuck in my mind from your first book was this notion that man did not domesticate wheat. Wheat domesticated man. Mm. And so I think you're... You're completely right, of course, when you talk about the rationality of the moment and the foreseeable future. But if we take back a step back from a historical perspective, I wonder whether those choices are the most rational choices, ultimately, because they may take humanity to a place where we wouldn't want to see it go. Uh, yes, that, that is definitely the danger, that when you, relinqu- when you relinquish authority... Yeah. then you basically lose control of, of, of your future, and you can end up... In, uh, in destinations you wouldn't like, like to be in at all. Yes. Uh, but you won't have any choice. Mm-hmm. And the question today is really who, contr- who shapes the algorithm right. 
uh, who decides the metrics yeah. of what is good, what is bad result, and who controls all the data. I think today, if you talked earlier about the useless class, for more and more people, the most important asset they still have is their personal data, yes. especially their personal biometric data. And they are basically now giving it for free Absolutely. to the uh, techno giants, yeah. to Apple and Amazon, and in exchange for email services and funny cat videos. Yes. And, you know, it's a bit like with the European imperialist in the 16th and 17th century coming to some Indian tribe in Manhattan and buying the entire island for a yes. few colorful beads. So now Amazon or Google is coming to us and saying, look, we'll give you these funny cat videos, and in exchange, give us your biometric <laughs> data. Your and many people say, yes, wonderful, good deal. <laughs> good, okay. Well, on, on that, I'm going to open it out to some audience questions. If you can give us your name and, and a brief question, please. Yeah, my name's Simon Chrisman, fellow of the RSA and director of the Brain Mind Forum. Absolutely fascinating, fascinating talk. My, my question very much is on the uh, more equal society and what your thoughts are about perhaps encouraging more the, the merge of humans into technology and you know, sort of not quite the dystopian um, cyborgs, but along those sort of lines that we start to join the technologies and the AIs in looking at creating jobs that way so we start to mitigate things by encouraging the pace of change, bringing down the price points and, and focusing that way rather than trying to look for ways to stop things. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Claudia Hvalish from Populous. My question is whether you... I mean, I haven't read your book yet, so I don't know if you go into any kind of policy ideas or anything, but what your thoughts are on the universal basic income, which I know is close to Anthony's heart, uh, and whether you think that this is the kind of question that we should be asking in terms of how do we narrow the gap between this new elite and what you call the useless class. Thank you. No, no, it's just gentleman here. That wasn't a plant, by the way, that question. Uh, um, thank you very much. Um, my name is Richard Twinch. I'm from the Bashara magazine. Um, we're very interested about um, people knowing themselves. So I was very interested to hear what you said about um, you actually you know, need to know yourself better um, so that you know yourself better than the machines know you, etc. I think one of the things you said about not relinquishing authority... I think what's very important, maybe a comment on this, is not relinquishing responsibility. Because that's actually what makes you useless, is when you cease to be responsible for yourself and you think others are going to take that for you. Perhaps you'd like to comment on that. Thank you very much. So, first, definitely, I don't think we can or should try to stop technology. It's not going to happen, and technology has so many benefits that there is no reason to just want to stop it completely. And I also agree that looking to the future, we look more towards a merger or a marriage between humans and machines and not a Hollywoodian kind of a ba apocalyptic battle between uh, humans and machines. Uh, the key issue is how to make technology serve us instead of making us serve technology. And again, the, the past gives us some optimism about the ability to really uh, take it in a, in a good direction. Uh, that's certainly what we should be thinking about. Um, with regard to universal uh, income, basic income, then it's one of the most interesting ideas emerging at present uh, of how to deal with this 
possible future of, of useless humans. Um, one problem is that it has never really been tried. And history really warns us against ideas that sounds good in, the, in theory and may have disastrous consequences in practice. And we had a lot of experience with such, such things in, in the 20th century. So we definitely need new models because the old models are becoming irrelevant, but we should, uh, we should be very careful uh, about them. One problem with the universal income issue is how universal it's going to really be. I mean, is it universal just in one country mm -hmm. or is it universal across the world? And how do you pro what will happen when you try to provide, say, today, a similar universal income in Bangladesh and in the UK? And who is going to pay for it? And are UK voters going to agree to such a thing? And if it's a universal, yeah. and if in a global world, you go for a scheme of universal income just in one country, then I think this goes against the grain of global development in the world and against our responsibilities. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is one of the, of the major questions I would ask about the idea of, of universal income. Uh, the third question was about... Uh, uh, responsibility. Oh, um, yes, definitely I think that the key issue is really our responsibility to ourselves and to the world as a whole. I mean, so far, humankind did not prove itself to be a particularly responsible species. Um, we have created havoc on, on the planet. We have destroyed habitats. We have uh, uh, brought the ecological system to the brink of collapse. And um, so I definitely think that re human responsibility is going to be a very, very important issue in the 21st century. And we are not getting there fast enough. If we think, especially in ecologic terms, then over the last decade or two, there has been a lot of talk about global warming and being more responsible to the environment and so forth. But so far, all this talk has produced not very impressive results uh, on the ground. Uh, global warming is actually keep increasing and, and accelerating. Uh, realistically speaking, from an economic perspective, the only real way with current technology to stop global warming is to stop economic uh, growth. And no government in the world, either democratic or authoritarian, uh, can stay in power if, it's, if it willingly will stop economic growth, neither in the UK nor in China. Um, so unless we find uh, some new technologies which will enable economic growth to continue without causing uh, an ecological breakdown, then we're heading towards a very, very difficult future from the ecological perspective. I mean, just, just taking that point about um, upgrading ourselves um, through healthcare systems and technology and so on, which is clearly an inequality that has opened up and will continue to open up. I mean, it, it relates to the universal basic income, but any of these policy challenges, in essence, and that, that you kind of need a beyond-nation yeah. authority in order to confront these, these, these challenges. But those, those beyond-nation... I mean, obviously, we're in the UK here, which has just, just rejected a beyond-nation authority. Mm -hmm. um, but those are very difficult to construct, very difficult to maintain, and have never been done, and it's almost impossible to imagine that it will be done at the global scale 
scale necessary to confront some of these issues. So maybe it does end up being more pessimistic. In, in this sense, yes, but because I think it, it's vital. I mean, today in, you, you can say we have global economics, we have a global ecology, and we have still national politics. Mm. And there is a mismatch there. I mean, if politics is out of step with economics and with the ecology, then this is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Because uh, you just don't have the politics you need. Yes. If your problems are on a global level, but your politics are on a national level, then the politics will not be able to solve the problems. Yeah, indeed. And just on, 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 the, on the basic income, because you've articulated a fear that I have about basic income, actually, mm-hmm. very well. And that's the, there are different ways of, of, of different things that it can become. But one of the outcomes that would be dystopian is if it became a means for people just to be the type of passive consumers mm-hmm. that um, I, I think would, would not be in our um, special interest, not be in their interest. And if it's a way of supporting people in productive activity, that's good. But you can see a model where it becomes a passive consumption model as well. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the work is done then of the, of the change, isn't it? The inequality is there. Because those who have an incentive because they have intellectual capability, networks, access to power, wealth, capital, will be very productive. Mm-hmm. And there might be a mass that isn't. And that's a dystopian vision. Um, definitely. I think, as I said, like with any theoretical model, which sounds good in theory, when you try to implement it in, in practice, you encounter all kinds of unforeseen difficulties, just like w- what you mentioned now, that this very positive idea of just providing a basic income for everybody could become a kind of golden cage mm. that uh, locks inequality in, in, in place mm. and the, the, even takes away the incentive to mm. do anything about it. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's a good warning. Thank you. Um, I realize you'll get the Nobel Peace Prize for this answer, but how would you suggest <laughs> that ordinary people um, either living within totalitarian or economically corrupt regimes Um, or individual citizens who live in democracies um, change their behavior in order to confront those issues and overcome those horrible situations. Great, thank you. In the history of Homo sapiens, democracy has flourished briefly at a few places. I wonder how you see it surviving in the scenario that you predict. Hi, sorry, Neville Bradley here. Um, So I'm just trying to understand uh, with the widening gap of inequality that you talk about, isn't it that with the um, decreasing relevance of governments and the sort of increasing power of global corporations, the global corporations rely on the masses for their profits effectively, which is similar to how governments used to rely on the masses for military so, in other words, you talk about a useless class, but don't, doesn't that useless class have to keep maintaining a certain level of income? So, in other words, there's a maximum cap on what uh, the elite can earn versus what the, the useless class can earn because global corporations rely on consumerism for their, for their profits, effectively, and that's what drives the global economic model. So, the first question is about what individuals can do. On, on a personal level, there is still a lot an individual can do to improve his or her life and his or her behavior. But looking at the big problems that faces humankind, we should acknowledge that the solution is simply not on the individual level. Uh, You need collective organizations uh, to be effective. 
So it, it's really two very different questions. What you can do as an individual to better your life and to protect yourself against some of these dangers and how to really solve or confront these issues. And I think if, you, if, if what you meant is the second part, it's the second kind of questions of what can we do um, about the global issues, then it's really not on the individual level. It's the ability to create new kinds of collective institutions because only collective institutions can really make a change on, on that level, which leads straight to the questions about the survival of democracy. Uh, democracy, as we have known it, is really a new and quite unique phenomenon in the history of humankind. And I don't think that, as we have known it, it will be able to survive for, for very long. Uh, it really is an institution or a dynamic that has been adapted to the unique conditions of 20th century industrial societies. And in that kind of environment, it was tremendously successful. But given the kind of changes we will see in the 21st century, it will become irrelevant. It's already becoming irrelevant. Uh, I think that already in 2016, the most important decisions in the world are no longer being taken through the... A traditional democratic process, even in countries like the UK or like the USA. It doesn't mean that we will see a kind of an Orwellian dictatorship, kind of Stalin or Hitler, uh, because this is also a 20th century model. In mo mo most probably in the 21st century, we will see completely new political models which are unlike anything that we've seen before. So also, if, if we want to beware of something, to be fearful of, of something, we shouldn't um, fight against the old enemies like Stalin and Hitler. They are probably not going to come back. It's, the, the threat will come in a very different shape. Uh, and the third question was? Was, is there a natural cap on inequality oh. because the corporations and government need people yes, to Yes, so the, there is one theory which says that the, the, the ultimate usefulness of humans is as consumers. This is basically the, the final stage of the ideology of consumerism, which says humans are basically consumers, and uh, in, in, in the end of times, this is the only thing humans will be. They will no longer produce anything, they will no longer create anything, they will just be the consumers, and this is a very important role because the consumer is the king. The customer is always right. The entire system uh, works in order to satisfy the consumer. Uh, the problem is that eventually, even if you accept the basic, the basic premise that you need some consumption, AI, artificial intelligence, may be better than us even in consumption. I mean, you could create economic systems that in which machines trade with machines and buy from machines and you don't really need the humans. And already today, not to go to all kinds of science fiction scenarios, already today, if you look who is the most important consumer in the world that all the advertisers are trying to satisfy his or her demands, then this consumer is the Google algorithm. If you want, like a book, to be, if I want my book to be successful, then my one, number one client is the Google algorithm. 
if I can grab the attention of the Google algorithm, then I'll be successful. I mean, the, the humans are far less important. So how do you grab the attention of the, of the Google algorithm? You don't put a poster of a naked algorithm on a red car or something like that. <laughs> there are all kinds of other, other, other systems that my publisher knows better than me. But you think, OK, my real customer, my real number one consumer is no longer human. It's an algorithm. With high-frequency trading systems already, the machines and trading with the machines. Right, we're going to take a quick-fire round of uh, questions. Thank you. Your presentation was very interesting, but there seems to be a dichotomy. You say we shouldn't look back to the 20th century, but you've mentioned certain factors that seem to be inherent in the human condition, namely hierarchy. I notice it's a masculine term. And you also mention the fact that uh, inequality would appear to be a human trait. So how will you design... How do you think we will design the next generation where those features are not apparent if humans are going to design them? Uh, hi. Um, I'm just wondering about um, the gender um, issue here. So um, 20th century women got the right to vote and became part of society. Um, How is that going to pan out in the 21st century? Hi, Kathleen from the British Council. Uh, my question is if the insurance agent at 50 has to become a game developer um, that's involving creativity, what will education and development of creativity look like in the 21st century? Okay, so um, about our, the legacies from the past, biological and, and historical, then definitely, I mean, we can't, in order to understand the future, at least for now, we need a very good understanding of the human past and of human biology uh, because all these technological wonders of the 21st century are still being controlled and managed today, at least, uh, with Stone Age emotions. Uh, and we need to understand these Stone Age emotions and these medieval institutions if we are to make sense of what will happen in the next decades. Uh, within a century or two, we may reach a point when this is really irrelevant. Once biotechnology and artificial intelligence reach, reaches a sufficient level of sophistication, maybe then we can really go beyond the Stone Age emotions and the medieval institutions into a completely new territory, uh, but not yet. Uh, with regard to gender, this really relates to, to, to the same issue. Uh, one of the interesting prospects for the 21st century is that the very notion of gender uh, will collapse. That the, with a sufficient advance, again, in biotechnology and in virtual reality, this clear-cut dichotomy of gender, of men and women, and, and so forth, it will no longer make any sense. Um, the most basic features of human identity, including gender identity, will become much, much more fluid than we were used to in previous centuries and, and millennia. So uh, not that gender will disappear, but its meaning will be completely different. I mean, already today, when you uh, play a character in a virtual reality game, then you can choose a character with a different gender than your own. As a virtual reality becomes more and more important, and as biotechnology enables us to change things on the physical level, so you can change your genders as easily as you change your clothes. And then the very notion of gender really collapses. 
And the last question was... Uh, was on the future of education, oh, particularly yeah. with creativity in mind. Well, th this is a very timely question, because whereas other issues are really about the future, when you talk about education, you talk about the present. Uh, you have six-year-old kids that just started the first grade of school this week. And when they're my age, 40, what would the world be like? And this is a question we need to answer today because we need to know what to teach the kids today in school so that it will still be relevant to their lives and to their uh, professional skills when they are 14. And the answer is that we have absolutely no idea. <laughs> Nobody knows what the job market will be like when these kids are 40 years old. So nobody really knows what to teach them. So we go on teaching, teaching them the old stuff that we've inherited from the 20th century, not because we really think it's relevant, but just because we don't have any other Some idea. Do, it's, yeah. it's just inertia. <laughs> um, my bet is that if the really relevant things to teach children today in school are things related to emotional intelligence, not to information and data and mathematics and so forth, the one thing we can be certain about is that they're going to face a very chaotic world, a world in which they have to learn throughout their lives and reinvent themselves again and again and again. And this will require, above everything else, a lot of emotional res resilience. Uh, it's a big question, really, whether Homo sapiens shaped by natural selection on the savannas of Africa, whether we have the emotional and physical resilience to face the chaotic and fluid world of the 21st century. So I would say that the best bet is to invest in the emotional resilience and intelligence of the kids and not in their knowledge of mathematics or economics or any other narrow subject. Great. Sadly, we've run out of time. Uh, thank you all for coming for those great uh, questions. Um, the RSA works on a whole range of things to do with technology, society, the state, the economy, education, basic income. You can check all that out on our website. Um, but finally, please do join me once again in thanking today's amazing speaker, Yuval Noah Harari. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.